Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2023 Elul Learning Series, entering 5784, sustaining our learning in Elul with Rabbi Elliot Dorf. So we're going to be talking about something that... Um, uh, a lot of people have a lot of difficulty with, um, and for some very good reasons. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, I would be happy to hear from, well, why is it, well, let me put it this way, why is it that um, that you have difficulty? I'll say that, that, why would you imagine that I would have difficulty in visiting people who are ill, especially people in hospitals? Anybody want to, uh, let's see, how do I see people here? Just a moment. Um, I'll go to view at the top right and then gallery. Gallery. There we are. Yeah. Okay. So does anybody want to offer a suggestion? Why Why is it difficult to go and visit people who are who are ill? Anyone? Just Just unmute yourself. Right. I think I never know. I know when I do it, I never know what to say. Good. I don't know how to. You know, it seems it went from different way. I think everything I I feel like everything I say is wrong. Okay. Good. So that's one important reason. What's another reason? We're going to get it, to that. Uh, it, 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 it forces you to confront theirs and your own mortality. That's right. It forces you to, under, under, to confront their mortality and your own, which is not something that's pleasant. Right? In your emotions in check. Yes. You have your own emotions when you see somebody who is ill, uh, especially somebody that's close to you. Um, and, you know, that's not going to, revealing those emotions may not help the person who's ill. Um, and you may feel uncomfortable um, revealing those emotions altogether. Good. What's another reason? A desire to uh, Im improve the situation knowing you can't. That's right. That's completely frustrating, right? Because you would hope to, to help the person um, and you're not going to be able to do that. Right, especially if we're not a physician. Uh, but if we're talking about terminally ill people, uh, then even the physicians are not. I mean, they're able to maybe, ma not maybe, they're able to manage the pain and suffering um, and hopefully reduce that. But um, but there's a certain feeling of frustration that's involved in all of this. Anything else? Um, Rabbi Annette Berman here. I have the pleasure or honor of being with my husband in his final uh, years. Mm -hmm. I didn't find it so difficult. Maybe I wouldn't, I would but, find it difficult going to a hospital, but uh, I didn't find it. Okay, good. Good, good for you. Okay. Um, let me just say one other piece of this, which is the, the schlep of it all, right? In other words, you're not going to, you're not going to see the person in the usual places you see the person, right? Um, so you're going to have to put it in your calendar to go to, to remember to go to visit the person. Um, and then um, I've, I've been on the ethics committee at UCLA Medical Center since the mid-1980s. I still have not figured out how they number rooms. But um, but let's say you, you finally get to the room where uh, you have to pay for parking, right? And then you have to, when you finally get to the room, what's likely to be the case? They're sleeping. They're sleeping. Or they are out for tests. And neither one of those things is going to encourage you to come back. 
right? Um, so there are all these these factors that are that are very you know that, that make it an uncomfortable situation. Um, I can't help you with paying for parking, but let me let me start with um, some things that that um, are very uh, are very important in regard to this. Um, so the the first thing in terms of visiting the sick, as you know, um, is that it is a mitzvah, and the reason why visiting the sick is a mitzvah is because one aspect of illness, I'm going to be talking about several aspects of illness, um, one aspect of illness is that it's isolating. And um, and now I'm going to quote you an ancient Jewish source, people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. Now, Barbara Streisand is just a few years older than I am, but but I'm ancient, so I guess she is too. Uh, the... Um, but but people have a real need for being in touch with other people. We certainly saw that during COVID, um, and the the Surgeon General has come out with a, a statement that loneliness is a national illness at the moment, right? Um, and um, and and so I mean, and, and the very worst situations, um, aside from execution and torture, the harshest penalty in, in a prison environment is solitary confinement. And unfortunately, we know that people who are held in solitary confinement for long periods of time often go insane. So it's a we really have an, a, an important need to be with other people. So illness, first of all, is isolating, and that's one reason. That's an important reason why um, the, the the tradition sees it as a commandment to do it, despite all these reasons that we just talked about as to why you don't really want to. Second thing is, well, how do you deal with it? You know, when you go in, people feel that they're not really, um, they're not, they don't really have the skills to do it well. Well, the first thing, and by the way, when I talk to doctors, I tell them this as well, um, it, sit down, right? Because if, uh, I'm not going to be able to do this online, but if the patient is lying flat and you're standing up, what does that, uh, what does that body language set convey? But you're not powerless. That's right. You're different. Different power things, right? You're but, you're okay. There's, and there's a problem with that. that. There's a problem with that. When you, as a physician, when you walk into a patient's room, the chair is on the other side of the patient's bed and is taken by a family member. Yes. Well, if that if, if there are no chairs, then if you right, can't, you can't. and it's not considered proper to sit on a patient's bed unless you really no. happen to. Yeah, that's right. No, fair enough. That's, that's a, so that's there, a there, bad thing. Understood, Barbara. Absolutely right. If there are no chairs there, you can't sit. Although, interestingly, Maimonides talks about this. Um, and in his time, there were no raised beds. So uh, the people slept on mattresses or mats on the on the ground. And he, Maimonides, who himself was a physician, says that what you need to do is come and lie down on the floor so that your head is not higher than the patient's head. Right. Um, the point being that because the second aspect of illness is that it's debilitating and you don't want anything that you do to reinforce the sense that the person has lost abilities. Right. Um, so it's a um, so if there is a chair there, then then sit down so that you are more or less on the same level. Then now the third thing, the thing that Bob mentioned before, what do you talk about? Let me just tell you that both patients and their visitors get sick of talking about the weather and the food in about three seconds. 
maybe more than three seconds, but three minutes. Okay. Um, so what are you talking about? This I learned this um, the year after I finished rabbinical school. I was working on my doctorate at Columbia, um, and I and I was asked by two social workers um, to do three sessions on Jewish theology at the Jewish Home for the Aged. This was in Manhattan, and the social workers met with me uh, before I was going to do these sessions, um, and uh, and they taught me some things about what people are like and. Uh, later on in life. And one of the things they taught me was that that body language changes as one gets older. Um, so that, as a matter of fact, during one of the sessions, there was a man who had been a dentist um, and he had his eyes closed through the entire session. And then he raised his hand and it was clear that he had heard absolutely everything that had gone on. Um, so that so normally with most of my students, I would assume they had fallen asleep if their eyes were closed during a session, right? But that was clearly not the case in this case. Um, and then I finally, you know, and they they had me um, select readings for these people, and and they they blew up the readings so that they were in very large print, so people could read them ahead of time. And by the way, these people were really well prepared. I'm not saying that my students are not normally, but I'm, but the the um, these people were really well prepared for class. So I finally asked these, these social workers, why of all things do you want me to do three sessions on Jewish theology for this group? And so one of them said, because they're sick of bingo, <laughs> right? Um, the, um, the, these are people who, you know, who are intellectually alive. Their bodies are not working so well, but their, their minds are still working well. Obviously, if that's not the case, then, then it's a whole different story, right? Um, and they want, many of them were college educated, and they want intellectual stimulation. Um, because another piece of, uh, of um, you know, of, of, of illness uh, is that it's not only debilitating, but it's infantilizing, right? You're not, um, you're not able to do the kinds of things that you were normally able to do as an adult. Um, and so what they taught me is that what you want to do is uh, you don't have to talk about Jewish theology with the people that you visit, but what, what you want to do is talk about the same sorts of adult topics that you would normally talk about if the people, if the person were well, right? So if that's, I don't know, politics, then talk politics or literature or movies or show business or uh, what, sports, whatever it is you normally talk about with those people, um, talk, talk about those things. Because what, what is the subtext? If you're talking about the exact same kinds of things to this person that you would normally talk about if the person were well, what is the subtext of that? What are you saying to the person? You're okay. Oh, yeah. You're you're okay. You're you're still an adult in terms of of how you think and 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 in terms of of how I want to interact with you. I still respect you as an adult because this is the opposite of again illness being infantilizing. This is giving people a sense that 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 their opinion still matters, and that it's important to interact on that kind of a level. So illness is isolating, it's it's um, debilitating, and it's infantilizing. And finally, um, most of us are not going to die of an acute illness. Uh, the vast and some of us will a sudden heart attack and you're gone, or a car accident and you're gone, that kind of thing, right? But the vast majority of us are going to die of chronic illnesses. That is, things that last over a long period of time. 
So the fourth aspect of illness is that it's boring, right? I mean, there's there's a limit to what you can do and 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 to, to, to continue to keep life interesting at all. So one of the things that our tradition created um, that I would at least suggest to you, especially when dealing with somebody who has a chronic illness, is this thing called an ethical will. Uh, it comes out of the Middle Ages, uh, and originally it was a letter that a parent would write to his or her, presumably adult children, um, talking about the values that uh, that person at least tried to live by. Hence, it's called an ethical will, right? But it doesn't have to be, first of all, it doesn't have to be a letter, and now it can be any form of recording that, that is available. Um, and it often can, you know, and it can be, it can be what, what kinds of values that you try to live by, but it can also be the family history. Um, and, you know, and you can, um, and, you know, if somebody's coming and helping you uh, record the family history, uh, that's a reason to get up in the morning because, um, and by the way, um, uh, I unfortunately didn't think to do this when my parents were alive, but I did it with Marlon's parents. Um, uh, I actually, I took a, at that time a, a, a videotape thing and Marlon didn't want to do this at all because she said she had heard all these stories before, right? But I had not heard the stories. So all you do is, I, I started, I forgot, I think I started with my father-in-law and then my mother-in-law the other way around. And all you do is just start from the beginning. What are your earliest memories? Um, who, were, who was around at the time? Um, aunts, uncles, cousins, all of that, right? Um, and um, where did you go to school? And what was that like? And if you came to this country, when was that? And, and what was that like? And how did you choose uh, a profession? Um, and did you like doing the kinds of things that you did? Um, did you meet somebody? And if so, how did that happen? And so on down the line, right? All you do is just and it just sort of lead people into telling their story. Now, you know, it, it doesn't have to be immensely articulate because this is not for public consumption. This is for the family. And, the fa and even if the children don't want to listen to these stories anymore, the grandchildren really do. Really, really want to know, right? So you're effectively helping this person leave a legacy of the family story, basically. And that's a reason to get up in the morning if somebody's going to come and help you do that. Um, it's a very, um, you know, so that can be part of this kind of ethical will um, that that you help people create if they have chronic illness. Um, the other kind of thing that I, I think is in is important in terms of this is that um, the uh, you you keep people in you get people involved people who have chronic illnesses and you know they're not going to get better uh, but who are still mentally okay um, you, you challenge them mentally I mean again it doesn't have to be Jewish theology it can be whatever you know whatever you know you're interested in interested in and what that person is interested in um, and you know and and challenge them right I mean. If anything is true about the Jewish tradition, um, it is that, um, and by the way, very I do a lot of interfaith work, very different from a lot of other traditions. Um, so for example, for many years, I, I did a program for the Anti-Defamation League um, for teachers in Catholic high schools, most of whom themselves were Catholic. Um, and the priest with whom I do this 
said to his fellow Catholics, we Catholics are good at, recep at reception. We receive what we are told. At which point I tell them, Jews are terrible at reception, right? We question everything, <laughs> okay? Well, use that. Use that cultural feature of, of our culture to, uh, in, to engage in, you know, in, in, in a debate. Well, I wouldn't say a debate. That's a little bit too strong. But at least in a conversation about things that are problematic. And of course, there are many things in life that are problematic these days um, in, uh, in America, in Israel, all over the world, right? And, uh, and, and use that to engage people to, so they have to really think through things and challenge you and, and be challenged by you because that helps to, to keep the brain cells going. And it also, um, it, it also reinforces the fact that this person is an adult and that you really respect that person's opinion. opinion to the point that you're willing to challenge it, right? Um, it's a, um, so I think those kinds of things I think are really important in terms of, of visiting the set. Another piece, another piece of this I think that's important is that um, if you can call ahead of time to make sure that the person is open to having visitors and is not gonna be out for tests. Um, and so that, when you get there, that's good for both of you, because so then when you get there, uh, the person will be there and expecting you. And it may be that, you know, the person, uh, the particular time that you wanted to come is a time when the person usually takes a nap. Um, so it may not be an opportune time for you to come, right? So uh, if you can call ahead of time and make sure that it is some a time when the person is wants to engage with you, then... That would be just as a matter of respect, but also for the pragmatic reason that that way you'll actually be able to engage with the person. Um, that kind of thing is, I think, really important. Um, another piece of this that uh, I think you have to be aware of um, is that people um, who have uh, terminal illnesses, especially chronic illnesses, it, it, it varies a lot by, by illness, and I'm not a physician, um, but I, I've been around physicians for a long time. Um, and one of the things that, uh, that I think you need to be aware of is that very often people do not deteriorate like, you know, in one step down. It often is, you know, they, they deteriorate in one way and then they're on a plateau for a while and then they, they deteriorate in a, a little bit more and they're on a plateau for a while, right? So, I mean, expect the fact that um, the way you saw the person last time may be exactly the way you see the person this time, um, but it may also be a little bit less good than the way that you saw the person last time. Um, and, um, you know, don't, if you expect that, uh, then hopefully your face will not show the, the kind of pain that you feel in seeing the person as being further diminished. Um, and, and, and you'll just understand that this is the, this is the nature of life. Um, and that this is something and then what you need to do is get to engage the person wherever that person is in that person's level of ability and disability um, and just work with work, work with the person um, at that level. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the, the purpose of, of these sessions is how we support each other. Um, what the other piece of this is that um, you don't have to do this alone. Right. 
um, you can do this with other people. You can you can set up not only can but maybe should uh, set up a, a kind of rotation of people who are going to be doing this uh, with a given family member or a given friend. Um, so the burden is, of, of this is not on on one person, um, but is rather shared. That's a like a bikur cholim society in the synagogue, right? Where people are are trained to visit people who are ill and who take on the responsibility to do this, um, because you don't have to be a really a really close family member or a close friend uh, to help somebody who's to visit somebody who's ill, um, but you need to be able to to know how to engage people in in, in these kinds of situations. Uh, a little bit about the medicine and just a little bit about it, because every patient is different and every situation is different. Um, there will be times probably um, when the the patient is going to be um, very frustrated um, and very, very worried. Um, you need to be able to hear that. Um, and to be able to hear that means that you don't say, oh, it'll be fine, right? Because it probably won't be fine if we're talking about the kinds of cases that we're talking about, right? By the way, if you're talking about different kinds of illnesses, if you're talking about visiting people who are ill, maybe even at home, right? And they are going to get better. Then, then, then one of the things you want to do is help them with practical matters, like the carpool, if that's an issue, um, or um, or feeding the family, if that's an issue, right? Um, you know, you want to be able to help them with some of the pragmatic matter. As a matter of fact, in the in the in the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, you know, the, uh, one of the codes of Jewish law, um, one of the things you're supposed to do is is um, to make sure that the person has filled out a uh, a will for the disposition of the person's property. And the way that the kind of puts it is, you're supposed to say, you're going to live to 120. But in case you don't live to 120, how do you want your property disposed of? Right? Or, you know, disseminate. Now, for many people, that's done long before they get really ill, but they, it may not be the case. And so you 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 may want to do that, right? Um, if nobody, if you don't think that the person has done that. Um, more likely, the person has not filled out a durable power of attorney for healthcare. Um, and you really want to help people do that. Um, a, a durable power of attorney for healthcare consists of two things. It consists of a proxy statement. That is, a uh, if I am not able, uh, I am. It would start out by I am now of sound mind, mind, and but in case I am not able to determine what kind of healthcare interventions I want, I have, I want to appoint person number one as being my surrogate decision maker, and if person number one is not either available or or willing to do it, then number two, if not number two, number three. Um, with the you know the contact information, um, and the uh, and then the second part is uh, sometimes called a living will, but basically um, it takes you through. Uh, there are different kinds of, of these things. Uh, the California Medical Association has one. Um, each of the movements of Judaism has one, um, and interestingly, it really reflects uh, the, um, the the legal ideologies of each of the movements and the Orthodox. And the one from the Rabbinical Council of America, the Modern Orthodox Rabbinic Group, um, it basically says 
my rabbi is so and so, consult him. <laughs> right. Um, and that's it, basically. Um, in the reform movement, you know, with individual autonomy, uh, what they have is a rubric. So uh, down uh, across the, the top is, I don't want it. I probably don't want it. I don't know. I probably want it. Uh, I definitely want it. And then down the horizontal side, uh, I mean, the vertical side is a, a whole series of interventions. And you sort of, the person checks whatever they want, because individual autonomy is the name of the game in the reform movement. In the conservative movement one, um, it takes you through, um, and it, it's based on two different re responses, that one that I wrote and one that Rabbi Avram Reisner wrote back in 1990. We agree on about 85 or 90% of the issues, but disagree on some of the issues. And so what the advanced directive does is it takes you through, nobody knows how they're going to die and what the issues are, but it takes you through 10 scenarios that are very common uh, where you have to make a decision as to whether you want this or you don't want this. Um, and um, and so uh, actually uh, I had to help my, my mother-in-law um, remove life support from my father-in-law when it, when it really needed to be done. Um, but she felt very guilty about all of this. Um, so I, I, helped, uh, I helped her fill out uh, the conservative movement's durable power of returning. So at the beginning, she said, well, I want everything. So I went through no, no, intervention number one, and I explained to her what it would mean. Right? And she said, oh, I wouldn't want that. Then intervention number two, oh, I wouldn't want that. <laughs> right? um, in the end, which she didn't want any of it, actually. Um, but what she, what she was worried about, and this is a real worry, she didn't want to feel abandoned. In other words, she was afraid that if she said that she didn't want all of these interventions, then people would just not pay attention to her at all uh, when she was, um, you know, when, when she was in an active stage of dying. Um, so that is a real concern, but it, but people need to be, several things need to happen. The first of all, people need to be reassured that even if they don't ask for any of these interventions, that doesn't mean that they're going to be ignored. Um, and the other thing is that most people who are not doctors, believe it or not, most people are not doctors, even among Jews, um, don't understand what these interventions are. So um, one of the things, by the way, we can do in the synagogue um, is have a uh, have a session. We've done this once or twice in the past. Uh, have a session in which um, a, a physician and someone and a rabbi um, goes through each of these uh, things in the, in the conservative movements committee. Uh, and the, and the uh, durable power of attorney that the conservative movement created, um, just to explain, the doctor can explain what the intervention is and what the pluses and minuses are uh, of each of these interventions, and then to, to enable people to understand what's being talked about, and then people can fill this out. Now, why would you fill this out? Well, California actually was the first state to have living will legislation back in 1973, um, and now all 50 states have something like that. And the, the American reason for doing that is so that, you know, you can determine your, uh, the, the course of your medical treatment, even when you are mentally unable to do that, right? Um, you know, individual liberty is, uh, is at the core of, a, of the American way of looking at medical care altogether um, uh, and, and all kinds of other things as well. The problem is that that these documents rarely work that way. Um, 
because when somebody is uh, is not able to determine their uh, what should happen next in terms of their healthcare status, doctors are going to look to the family members um, because uh, for several reasons. Number one, hopefully the family members will know what this family member would have wanted, right? Um, but but in addition to that. Um, when the person dies, that person is not going to sue the doctor, but family members might. And 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 doctors may even win in court, but they don't want to spend time in court. They're not. That's not what they're trained for, right? And they don't get paid for it, right? So they're going to want to try to make sure that the family is on board um, with whatever is going to happen. Um, and if the family doesn't agree. Then they will have the, the little try mediation of various sorts and all of that, right? Uh, but then they will ultimately have to get a court order to do whatever it is that they need to do. But they really want to avoid all of that, right? Um, so what I'm trying to say is the, the I, I, again, I've been dealing with this on the ethics committee at the at UCLA Medical Center uh, for 35 years now, uh, actually close to 40, and um, and every time we've had one of these cases. Um, it's been because the family is not uh, in, in sync with each other or with the doctors as to what would be medically appropriate. And our job uh, in those situations is to try to, to bring some agreement uh, as to what happens. Um, and sometimes we succeed and sometimes not. Um, but it's a, um, so, I'm, so it, the only time that, is, that this advanced directive really, really governs what happens is if there are no family members or no friends around, right? In other words, there is a, a document on, on, on record, but nobody else knows the person in any way, right? Um, or where um, the family members themselves are, are really conflicted, in which case um, the, the, you know, the, the doctors will go to court in order to enforce the advanced directive. Um, but that, but the, there's a Jewish reason to do this, though. Um, the Jewish reason to fill out an advanced directive um, is so that uh, your children will talk to each other after you die. Um, I've actually seen some of these cases. Um, three adult children, two of them agree that it's appropriate to withdraw life support from mom, let's say. One of them specifically says no. And I actually heard a, a case like this where the daughter said, mom and I did not get along very well during our lifetime together, but in the end, I was there for her and you guys killed her, she said to her siblings, right? You want to avoid that, okay? You want to avoid that kind of family interaction. Um, and, you know, they may not get, get along with each other after you die for all kinds of other reasons, but you don't want this to be yet another reason why they don't talk to each other, right? Uh, I actually know of a family um, who uh, took uh, all of the adult children and the grandchildren um, and the uh, children-in-law to Cancun for a week on condition that on Tuesday afternoon, all of the adults would be together so that, and, and they were handed the advanced directives of both the man and the woman and the couple, right? Um, and they went through it because people don't like to talk about, uh, about the end of life. Um, and they certainly don't like to talk about the end of life of somebody that's really close to them or themselves. But Jews know how to deal with the text, right? So if you hand out a text, namely the advanced directive, you can go, then go down 
you know, what uh, each piece of the text, and each member of the couple then explained what they wanted, what they didn't want. And so whoever was the surrogate decision maker could rightfully say, well, you were there when mom and dad told us what they wanted. This may not be what I want when I die, but this is what they said they wanted. And so all I'm doing is carrying out their own wishes that you all heard, right? Now, you don't have to go to Cancun to do this, okay? Um, but the, but I, mean, I think it, it is really important um, not only to fill out an advanced directive, but to make sure that your loved ones know about it. Um, and and, and if, I've heard you, and, and better that, if it's at all possible, better that they not just read it, um, but they they uh, they go through it with you, and 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 hear what you are that what you have written is not just something that you didn't understand, but that you really understand what you're you're choosing, and that um, and they want they should hear it from your mouth as if, as it were, if at all possible, as well as in the written document. Um, so that's another thing that if they if the person has not filled out an advanced directive for healthcare. Um, that would be a really important thing uh, to help the person do uh, while that person is mentally competent um, because it's going to be good for themselves. It's going to be good for their family members. That way, by the way, the family, unlike my mother-in-law, she, she really did not need to feel guilt over what, over the decisions that were made, but she did feel guilt because she didn't, she had never talked about this with her husband. Right. Um, so this is a way to, uh, to alleviate or actually to avoid any any sense of guilt. It's also a way to make sure that the surviving family members don't argue about this issue. Um, I want to mention one last thing, and then I'll be happy to take whatever questions you have. Um, in the end, um, the Jewish tradition has, is really in conflict over these things. Um, and the, because the, the Jewish tradition is very um, supportive of medicine. Um, this goes back, well, it goes back to the Torah itself. Uh, in the very first legal code in the Torah in Exodus, um, if somebody assaults somebody else, uh, the, the person has to, uh, to provide for the time lost from that person's job while healing, and he must surely heal him. That is, he has to provide uh, medical care for the person. This was the Exodus Law Code written around 1000 before the Common Era, when medicine was not really all that good. Um, but even then, um, the, the, there was a sense that, that medicine had to be used. Um, all the more so during the Middle Ages, there were all kinds of rabbis uh, who were also physicians. I mean, Maimonides is the one that everybody thinks about, um, but there were a lot of them that were uh, both rabbis and physicians. Um, that doesn't happen very much anymore because it still takes more or less the same amount of time to go to rabbinical school, but it takes much, much longer to go through med to become a doctor. Um, I actually was at a conference at the University of Virginia Medical Center, and the dean said, in Mr. Jefferson's medical school, how long do you think it took to become a doctor? Any guess? Three years. Two years? One year. Because in the 1700s, that's all they could teach you. Right? Now it's four years of pre-med and four years of medical school and a year of internship and three years of residency and postdocs and all of that, right? Simply because the, the knowledge of 
medicine has exploded over the last 200 years, especially over the last 100 years, and even more over the last 50 years in turn exponentially. Uh, so there's just much more to learn. So there are a number of PhD rabbis like me, uh, but there are very few MD rabbis. Uh, Avi Khavivi is one, um, but there are very few MD rabbis these days, right? Uh, just because it takes so long to become trained as a doctor. Um, but the thing is that one needs to, to understand that, on the one hand, the Jewish tradition has been very aggressive um, in terms of uh, the need to try to use medicine to the fullest. But on the other hand, starting with the Garden of Eden story, um, it's, a, it's a mythic way of explaining the fact that we understand that that we are mortal, right? Adam and Eve were allowed to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. That's just a mythic way of saying that human beings understand moral distinctions and are able to live by them, but we're not able to eat of the fruit of the tree of life because we are not immortal, okay? Later on, Ecclesiastes will say there is a time to be born and a time to die, right? So there's, a, on the one hand, a really aggressive stance in terms of the use of medicine in our tradition. And on the other hand, there's an acceptance of the fact that at some point we die. And so um, uh, I was on the very first hospice commission, Jewish hospice commission, um, called together by Rabbi um, 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 Maurice Lamb, who was the rabbi at Beth Jacob at the time, right, an Orthodox rabbi. And uh, and and Rabbi Bill Cutter and I, the, the Orthodox Conservative Reform, were part of this, and 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 a number of physicians were part part of it as well. Um, and, but it was it was 1983 when the Jewish Hospice Commission first it came into being in Los Angeles. Um, and basically, what we were trying to do is to to create educational materials for Jews to understand how to balance these two different parts of our tradition. Right? When is it the, the case that we should really be aggressive in terms of whatever medical care we we seek and and administer? And when should when should um, when should hospice care, that is comfort care, be applied instead? Right? Um, and and you need to know that there are times there there does there is really as much as medicine has has expanded in its ability to to help us live and live well. As much as that's happened, there, in, in the end, we are still mortal. Um, and at some point, it is appropriate to, to use hospice care. Hospice care is includes a visit a lot of visits from family and friends. It's um, and, and as a matter of fact, hospice care can take place in the home. If you remember, Jackie Kennedy left the hospital so she could die at home. Um, because then you're going to be among family and friends and in familiar surroundings, as opposed to a hospital bed where you don't know anybody, right? Um, so you need to understand that that may be, that hospice care may be appropriate at some point. And don't see that as a failure of uh, courage or a failure of effort or a failure of any sort. It is just the appropriate way uh, to help people at that stage in life. Okay, I see Barbara has her hand up. Go ahead. Before, wait, hold on, before Barbara asks her question, and then I'm happy okay. to give it to her, um, I just want to make one one mention, because I um, this is part of the reason that we asked 
Rabbi Dorf to do this tonight. Um, we are, as many of you have probably heard, or you'll hear definitely a lot about over the high holidays, our theme for this year is Mechaye Hakol, so sustaining community. And it's a play on the idea that our reform colleagues um, use Mechaye Hakol instead of Mechaye Hameitim to really focus on the life ahead as opposed to bringing back life that is no longer with us. Um, and part of the reason we chose that theme is because we really want to put our efforts into talking about what does it mean to live life in 5784, um, to build up our Hebra Kadisha, to build up um, programs around focusing on from visiting someone who is sick to the death and dying process, um, as well as just focusing on life through recognizing that that means having conversations about death. Um, so this was the first of many conversations and a whole series is coming your way uh, after Simchat Torah through Hanukkah that'll be all about writing these advanced directives, talking about ethical wills, going and visiting um, mortuaries, uh, having training for Hever Kadisha if you're interested in being part of that initiative between us and Ikar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this was a, a brilliant taste, but simply a taste of what is to come, both from Rabbi Dorf, also Ariel Friedtanzer is on here this evening. She will also be teaching, um, and many other people in our community and in this field, so that we can really amp up what it means to be living uh, with an eye towards what it also means to be allowing for life once we are gone. Uh, so I just wanted to point that out. And and now and now any questions, uh, Barbara? Go ahead. Hi. Um, Elliot, you know, since you're on the committee at the ethics committee at, uh, in UCLA, one of the things that's always bothered me as a physician is that when you, when a person enters the hospital and I don't know what, at what age they start doing it, if there is an age, but they certainly don't do it for kids. They always ask, do you have an advanced directive? Right. Now, what good is that? It's useless because they don't ask, I believe that they should ask for copies of the advanced directive. I mean, everybody's got it. It's sitting in my file cabinet here. Because if anything happens, the hospital knows, oh, there's an advanced directive. They don't know when they should pull the plug. If something happens in the OR that's critical, they don't know should they continue saving that life or should they let it go? They have no idea. And I personally would love it if you maybe if UCLA could get it going, maybe other hospitals would, because I I think it's a, a failure on the part of hospitals that they don't know what the person wants. It doesn't help them to know that there's an advanced directive. Right. Because, you know, when there's an emergency situation, that emergency situation requires having it on hand, not in your file cabinet at home. Yeah, no, that's certainly true. And uh, I honestly don't know what the procedure at UCLA is now in terms of this. But I mean, I, knew, don't know, I do know that they have medical social workers that, that talk with uh, patients to try to make sure that they have an advanced directive and that they know what it is. Um, in other words, that the doctors know what it is. Um, uh, I, again, I'm not I'm not really current about this, but thank you for asking. I will find out. Okay, I will find out what what UCLA does about this kind of stuff. Um, Tony, what does City of Hope do on this this stuff? You know, 
I think the question of do you have an advanced directive is really intended to open the conversation to say, please bring it in. We want to have it on file because you're right. When things are in crisis mode, it's you don't want to be scrambling to look for it. So right. City of Hope's been having an initiative for some years, how successful it is is questionable, but to have every patient have an advanced directive that I think it's hard to make an advanced directive when you're healthy, that makes sense. You know, what, what things you'd be willing to go through might be different when you're 40 and healthy than when you're 40 and have a terminal illness or 70 and have a terminal illness, you know, just as things change. So I think some people are actually scared to turn in their advanced directive because it feels so final. Right. Yeah. And, and the interesting, the original legislation back in 1973 in California required that it be renewed every three years um, because exactly right. Whatever you say at age 40 may be different than what you say at age 70 or different what you say at age 80. Right. Or, or different once you have a, an illness that you didn't have before and you're now really experiencing it. Um, and so now maybe what you would want is different from when you had no clue as to what this was going to feel like, right? Um, so, I mean, th that's one of the problems with advanced directives, right? Namely, is this really a, a reflection of what the person would want under these conditions? Um, so um, it, it's important not only that there be an advanced directive, but that it be current. Um, and I, know, I really don't know what UCLA does with that, but I will try to find out. Thank okay, you. I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call people in order because there's a lot of you that have questions. So I'm gonna do this in order and remember your number. Um, okay, Bonnie, and then Helen, and then Roseanne, and then Lillian, and then Mike, and then Mitch. You might have a question. You unmuted, so I assume you have a question. Um, so let's go in that order. Bonnie first. Um, Rebecca, I have a question. Uh, Doctor Schatz, I'm responding to Elliot's question about what does UCLA do, so I can oh, yeah. wait. Or go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, uh, Bonnie, hold on. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. So, Elliot, do you want me to say what you feel like? By all means, please do. Yeah. Okay. So it really varies a lot, and I agree with Tanya. Um, it varies a lot how we do it. In primary care, we actually have a reminder to start um, to do it every five years and to update it. Now, if someone, and so in primary care, it really varies depending on the physician. You know, I'm I'm um, very committed to doing this. Elliot and I are on the ethics committee together, which has been a great honor for what, for 30 years, Elliot? Um, and so, you know, it's inculcated in, in our, in my soul at this point to do it every year. But um, I think it depends on the time that the provided the pri primary care providers have i think it depends on the specialty and um, we do a you're right barbara we do a temporary advanced care directive when somebody is admitted to the hospital but that's an awkward time to do it and we all know it um it's a very awkward time and we try to get these discussions going early on when people are young and then to update it because as Elliot said, things change a lot depending on, you know, your goals and objectives for life when you're in your 30s are very different than you maybe are in your 70s or 80s where every year is precious. Thank you. Thanks, William. All right, Bonnie. Okay, so two things. One is that I, I had an experience at UCLA 
that was not our, our hospital because we were at Kaiser, but it was an emergency. Larry had this hemorrhagic stroke and um, the girls drove whatever they could. But what ended up happening was that they explained this horrendous surgery that maybe they could do or would do and removing skulls and whatever bad stuff and that he wouldn't have quality of life. My son-in-law down in San Diego, he had a copy. I have one at home, but I was I was up at UCLA. And um, he read it to the emergency physicians over the phone. And so we were able to not have to have any of the heavy duty stuff. Um, so that was my experience with that. But my second thought is that I, for years ago, I was on a committee at Beth Am with Rabbi Howard on a Bikur Cholim committee where we did visiting. And she put me in touch with, at that time, Santa Monica Hospital that was later bought up by UCLA. And I trained there and I have been visiting palliative care patients there for almost 20 years. Mm. And um, so it's, it is interesting to see who has what and how much easier it is when you have, have these things in place before you're ill, but also um, the difference between palliative and hospice is important for people to know too, uh, because we have chronic patients like uh, sickle cell anemia uh, people or um, what's the long one? I can't think of it. Um, but anyway, so that's, that's an interesting thing. Lots of times they go on hospice, but I would be happy to talk with anybody about what kinds of things I do when I visit these patients and they run the gamut from all kinds of, from, you know, uh, 20 year olds to 80 to year olds and from people who come from Dubai or from, uh, you know, uh, Darwin, California, which is in the middle of nowhere and all kinds of religions. And uh, it's a very interesting work. So I'd be happy to talk about that. Yeah, the cultural part that, that Bonnie was just talking about is really important um, because part of you know, I've been talking about what you talk about to the to, to Jews who are, come in this culture, but um, people who were raised in different cultures really want different things and expect different things. By the way, one thing I forgot to mention is that the Shulchan Aruch says you haven't fulfilled the responsibility to visit the sick unless you pray with the person, which then leads to, you know, all kinds of questions about, well, what is it that you're praying for, right? Um and and one can pray for relief of symptoms. One can pray for um, being able to see somebody that you haven't seen in a long time. One can pray for reconciliation uh, with family members or, or people that used to be friends, right? I mean, even if one cannot um, cannot reasonably pray for a a cure of the disease, right? Um, one of the people on the on the hospice commission back in the 80s was Larry Heifetz, who was an oncologist uh, at Cedars, and he did brain cancer. And at the time, um, he said, most of the, the cancers that I see, I cannot cure, but I can but I can care, right? And that's the reason why he got involved in, in the hospice commission. Um, so, I mean, the, the cultural uh, sensitivities that Bonnie was just talking about are really important if you're talking about visiting people that are not part of our own culture. Okay, Helen. Okay, um, I, I just wanted to say that uh, I was a gerontologist by training and I did a lot of uh, educational lectures 
related to these issues. And uh, my husband and I had, uh, when we did a trust, when we updated our trust, we did a durable power of attorney for healthcare. And we put our children in to speak for us. And I'm looking at my husband and I said, you do know that Faye will not have a problem pulling the plug and Steve will not be able to do it. And I said, you have to sit down and talk to them because this is, I mean, I was being, I was making a joke of it because at that time it was much easier. And, um, you know, we sat down and my son's first comment was, Faye's on it, isn't she? She's going to be there to be called because she's the big sister. And um, it, but talking about it is the most critical thing. Talking to your family about it, talking to the people who are going to make the decision it helps them become comfortable. They don't like it, that's not what I mean, but it helps them be able to address the issue. And I think that's really one of the most important things that you were addressing before. Right. And if you're, at, if you're a patient through UCLA, um, my primary care doctor asked for, she asked for our durable powers of attorney for healthcare many, many years ago. And in the emergency room, the residents looked at my husband and said, um, Mr. Wax, we um, we ask everyone, you filled out your durable power of attorney and you made these decisions. Do you still want go by them? And he said, yes, I am very comfortable with the decision I made. And of course, I was not at that point because he said, pull the plug, you know, don't do anything. And I said, uh, but, you know, he was very comfortable with it and it worked out for him the way he had wanted it. But mm. it, it's a the price on the family, whether or not they're getting along, you know, it's, it, it's having the person be very clear about it is the most important thing, I think. Yeah. I wanted to just, you know, impart that. Right. Thank you. And relieves a lot of guilt mm-hmm. afterwards. Yep. Roseanne. Uh, yes, this is, this is so interesting and so relevant. Um, Getting back to talking, visiting and talking to ill people, it reminded me of my late mother had a best friend since my mother died at 100, and she had a best friend since high school. They were both in their 90s at the time, and actually, well, the best friend got dementia. It wasn't necessarily severe, but Frida was her name. And I loved Frida too. She was like an aunt to me, but Frida would talk in loops. You know, she would repeat herself or ask a question repeatedly. It didn't bother me as much, but my mother couldn't stand it because she said it was so painful for her to see Frida in that state that she wanted to avoid going to visit her or she would want to take her to a movie or do something where there would be less circular talking. So, and then I have one other little thing, but maybe, um, Rabbi Dorf, you could uh, speak to that, visiting people yeah. who have potential. That's right. The, 
the, as I mentioned earlier, when I, the, the case that it, the uh, series of, of talks that I gave to the people at the Jewish Home for the Aged were to people who were mentally fine, even though physically they were not. Now, obviously, it's a whole different story if you're talking about people who are not mentally fine. Um, and um, and then um, the, then it, it it really depends upon what the situation is, and it really varies a lot from one to another. I'm actually working on a on a rabbinic ruling right now um, that um, was brought to me uh, first by Rabbi Laura Geller, and she and I worked on something, an article about this about six years ago, and then one of my my college friends um, who uh, has been married to the same woman for decades. Um, but she no longer recognizes him or their children, right? And um, and the question then becomes, and this has been true for about 10 years now, um, and the question becomes, um, it's not good for a person to live alone, right? Should um, should should there be some way of, and he, by the way, he's supporting Medicare Plus, um, this friend of mine, are, are, are financially supporting uh, the wife in uh, in memory care in a memory care facility right um and you know but um both of his adult children said that he, he really needs to find somebody uh, to give him companionship and he has he found a widow and they are friends and they want to get married but he doesn't want to divorce his wife right so what do you do with that right i mean uh, 10 commandments do not commit adultery right um, so um, what I'm arguing, and I, uh, tomorrow we have an ethics committee meeting, at, uh, the ethics subcommittee of the law committees, uh, which will give me my first feedback on this, and I'm going to be yelled at. I know already. <laughs> okay. But what I'm arguing is that the laws of adultery can only understood and understandably be applied or plausibly be applied uh, to, to people who are all mentally competent. Right. Um, but if somebody is not mentally competent, then that's not that that the laws of, of uh, adultery can cannot really apply to that kind of situation. Um, so uh, that's what I'm arguing. Who knows whether it'll fly or not? But we'll see what happens. Just because it's already 830, I'm going to call on the two other people. And then if we have time, we'll come well, back. This is not a question. It's something I want to very quickly mention. There's a very important article that I recently read. I didn't know about this session tonight, or I would have, but it, either in the New Yorker, the New York Times, or the Washington Post, it was a doctor writing about CPR mm -hmm. and how destructive and dangerous it is, and how not like the television shows where they bring somebody back to life and the person is the same. I strongly recommend that everybody read it before they fill out or adjust their advanced medical directive. That's it. Thank you. Okay, yeah. Mike. Um, yes, uh, thank you, Rabbi Dwarf. And um, I, I just wanted to emphasize, and, and maybe Rabbi Dorf could do this as well, that even if there are advanced directives or, and uh, uh, durable powers of attorney, uh, there can always, depending on circumstances that can change from day to day or week to week, uh, 
there can be the there is so much so many uh, uh, situations where um, clergy are I would say the, the uh, social workers, pastoral workers uh, in that field are needed to interface with the family yeah. on different occasions uh, that can change. Uh, and, uh, and it's so important. Uh, I mean, I can, I can see why hospitals are, uh, I'm a retired pediatrician uh, but uh, hospitals are putting a lot of effort into their chaplaincy services uh, increasingly, and uh, it's just a, and it's such an important part of uh, training and uh, important part of interfacing with the family, even in hospice situations now. And I think I think in the hospice situation, because those have been that area has been developed so uh, much more in recent years. It, it's better, but maybe you could speak uh, to the necessity of trained professionals. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, um, part of the rabbinic training is that um, they get at least some some training in terms of, of hospital work. Um, some people do it do much more. They actually get some of these uh, uh, these units that you need to to get in order to be certified as a as a chaplain, right? Uh, a few of our rabbinical students have, have done that, um, but all of them get at least some training in terms of how do you how do you uh, help people who are hospitalized. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a um, it, life even toward its end is uh, is a dynamic thing. It changes hourly, you know, uh, daily, hourly, that kind of thing, right? And exactly what is appropriate depends upon the current circumstances, right? Um, and, and that's very often hard to catch and hard to discern and therefore hard to know how to deal with. But with training, you can at least do it better. Yeah. Okay, Mitch, I think you're our, our last comment question. Hi, um, if I'm one of many siblings and I'm very thoughtful about, about these kinds of things, how do I speak to my terminally ill parent about his or her will without appearing to my siblings and without appearing to my parents as if I'm the greedy child when I ask to do their will? Have they created a will already? No. Oh, they haven't created a will. Right. Oh, dear. Um, well, then I think in order to preserve uh, you are to avoid that that impression by either your parents or your siblings. Get get your siblings together to talk to your parents, all of you together, um, to say to your parents, "You need to create a will for the disposition of your property. Um, we're not gonna we're not gonna intervene in that. You need to to do that. We'll get you you know uh, professional help to to do that. Um, but we as as your children, not just you as one child." But we, as your children, um, want you to to fill out uh, some kind of uh, whatever your your will is for that, um, which could, by the way, you know, if you talk to estate attorneys, they will probably tell you that you're you're better off not with a will that will have to then go through probate, but rather through 
you know, a, a living trust and things like that. But but all of that needs to be done while they are mentally competent. Um, and so in any case, I mean, what I would say to you is the Northern Reserve, good relations with your with your siblings, get them all together. And, and, and all of you together should tell your parents now, if you haven't done it until now, now is really important. And we can even provide you, we will pay for the uh, estate attorney that will help you do this. Very good. Thank you. Good. Thanks, Mitch. That was an important last question. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.